according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians 3, verses 17 through 21. We're in the final paragraph of this chapter and uh, looking to wind this up and then uh, tackle chapter 4 with the new year. And uh, it's curious to me because uh, chapter 4 is uh, where Ralph was when I first visited Austin Bible Church. And the first Wednesday night I sat and listened to uh, Ralph teach and he was in Philippians chapter 4 and I thought, wow. So here we are. All right, brethren, join in following my example. This is Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. All right, so here's what we're going to cover. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege that it is for us to come together this morning. And Father, for your faithfulness on display, uh, faithfully you woke us up, faithfully you provided for the Word of God to be taught here, and faithfully the, uh, the lights are on, the doors are open. Everything is a testament to your faithfulness, it's a testament to your grace. We haven't earned it or deserved it. Uh, yet here we are, Father. We call upon your faithfulness in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us in uh, all things, even the deep things of God. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is the third and final portion of the chapter, and it's simply titled, Our Citizenship is in Heaven. And that would have been a, uh, a monster statement for the believers here in Philippi, being that it was a Roman colony. It was on Macedonian soil or Greek soil, however you want to call it, uh, but it was not a Greek city. It was not a Macedonian city. They may have been, the, the bulk of them could have been ethnically Greek or ethnically uh, Macedonian, but politically they were Roman citizens. And a significant segment of their population was founded by Roman legionaries anyway that had retired from their military service and were settled there to intermarry, to, you know, get those Greek girls and, and intermarry and and, uh, and, and spread the Latin culture, spread the Roman hegemony throughout the, uh, the Roman reign. And so very, uh, very proud of the Roman citizenship. Remember, as Roman citizens, they had certain exemptions, they had certain rights. And it was really a problem when they beat Paul and, threw, and Silas and threw them into jail. The way they had beaten them that way was totally contrary to Roman law and uh, certainly made the, the magistrates nervous the next morning when they, when they found out about it. So uh, all of that is background then for verse 20 here, our citizenship is in heaven, which should be a huge wake-up call for um, you and I uh, during political seasons or other things whereby we tend to get sidetracked in earthly things and we have to stop and remind ourselves, wait a minute, render to Caesar what is Caesar, but unto God what is God's. And let's not lose track of the, uh, of the real issues with respect to our service before the Lord. All right. When Paul says, join in following my example, that's really kind of an interesting way to render that in, in English. The, the idiom, it is highly idiomatic the way that he expresses it. He does start with the term brethren, but then he commands them to become something. He commands them to become something, and it's, it's an imperative of ginomai, to become. And there's a difference between maybe a verb, if I was to give you the verb for imitation and say, copy this, copy this, copy this. It's not a verb. He's not commanding them to copy anything. He's commanding them to become an imitator. And that's a state of being as opposed to 
you know, a verb. And the, and the verb obviously goes with it. You're not going to be an imitator if you never copy anything. But to become an imitator is really the, the, the sense of it, as it is in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4. But this is even more than just the noun mimetes. The noun mimetes, you know, where we get mimic, if you're going to mimic somebody. Mimetes is the noun, but this is a compound noun. The noun is actually sum mimetes. To, so to become a co-imitator. And really that's the best way, I think, the best way to render this in English is become a co-imitator with me. Become a co-imitator with me. That Paul himself is a mimetes and he wants them to become mimetai so that together they would be sum mimetai in, uh, in the Christian walk. So become a fellow imitator with me. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so that expands the whole field that much larger because it's not just the us. When they obey and they join him, then now it's us walking according to this pattern. And then there's going to be others as well that they can observe. They're not the only ones that are walking with the Lord. They're not the only ones that are, uh, that are walking according to this pattern. But then there's the other pattern to be mindful of as well. So I think in all of this, we, we touched on this on Wednesday and really centered it under main point one, how Paul made imitations and patterns a focal point for his ministry. And, and I believe it's normative. Uh, Peter likewise talked about imitation and setting the example. And so I believe it's normative for the entire church age that God designed us as a family. And that's why we have terms like brother and sister and the older women encouraging the younger women and the older men encouraging the younger men. That's not accidental. This, this vocabulary is used this way because the church is designed this way that we are designed to be copycats. <laughs> We're designed to, to learn from the right examples. And younger siblings can learn from older siblings, for example. And uh, if you were, I didn't have that advantage, being the oldest of my siblings. And so I had to blaze the trail and make all the mistakes. And, and they could learn from my mistakes. And by the time you get to that baby of the family, they got it all figured out, right? They get it all figured out in, in different things. Well, this is what it's about. So we took some time on Wednesday and went through these passages that will typically either use a verb for imitation or use a noun for an imitator, or will also use a noun for type or pattern. Like uh, the tabernacle was patterned after the blueprints of the, of the heavenly reality. And we have types and patterns and examples to follow as well. And so that's, that's a significant realm related to that. Uh, moving past that, we talk about why is this so important? Well, the importance of right patterns becomes critical in view of the wrong patterns that are all too frequently imitated. In other words, the peer pressure goes both directions. <laughs> and there's, there's the positive example where you can reinforce your Christian walk with like-minded believers that are positive to truth, that are hungry for the Word of God, that are eager to fulfill their work assignment. Those are the believers you want to surround yourself with. Those are the believers you want to fellowship with. Honestly, they're the only believers you can fellowship with. Because this other crowd, you can imitate them, but you can't fellowship with them. There's no harmony between light and darkness, no concord, no, no fellowship. And, and so there's nothing in common in, uh, in those realms. And so this other crowd, when he says, for many walk, of whom I've often told you. And keep in mind, they have a walk. They have the same peripatetic activity we have. It's just oriented differently. All right? It's a walk of, of, uh, of, of, of carnality. It's a walk of worldly mindedness. They're not focused on the things above. We're going to see the three, really the characteristics here. Uh, their God is their belly, uh, uh, celebrating the shameful things. They glory in their shame. And, uh, and then they set their minds on earthly things. Those three things, that's, that defines their walk. And we want nothing to do with that. We want to observe it for what it is and steer clear of that. And this uh, then forms the essence of this, all right? So um, recognizing there are many, numerous, more than a few, many wrong walkers, in fact, more than we want to admit more than we want to admit. And that's curious to me why we assume that, oh, well, you know, there's not that many or it's not a really a big problem or that's not a problem here. You know, that probably happens in, you know, denominational churches and that would never happen at Austin Bible Church. Uh, guess again. All right. Uh, so it's a facet of humanity whereby 
you know, when you do uh, take your eyes off the Lord, what's going to happen, right? Peter took his eyes off the Lord and he started to sink. We're the same way. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the metaphor for our Christian walk. If you want to walk in the water, keep your eyes on the Lord. And that's, uh, that's our, our benefit and our blessing in that. But there are many. When Paul says many, that's more than a few, <laughs> okay? That's my official Greek um, expert opinion on this. Many is more than a few. It's not a small number. And the problem is, is the more that start going this way, the better it seems to people. And well, it can't be all that bad. Look how many people are doing this. And well, what's wrong with it when so-and-so is doing this? And so you start getting more and more people, and then you start getting church leaders, you start getting deacons, and then before you know it, it kind of becomes norm. It kind of becomes the, the normal thing. Well, doesn't everybody view things that way? And uh, no, of course not. So we have to deal with it on this basis. This must be told, and it must be told repeatedly. And I tried looking back. He said, uh, of whom I often told you, you know, it's one thing to be an I told you so, but then to be a uh, repeat offender, <laughs> you know, I told you and I told you and I told you. And how many times have I told you, right? Told you a million times. Don't exaggerate. I've told you and I told you and I told you. Well, when did he tell them this? When did he have that? So far as we know, there was only a single visit. We can prove there was only a single visit in Philippi and it didn't last that long with the, with the, uh, uh, we had the pre-jail stay and then the jail night and then he was gone the next day. So those warnings must have come during that time when he was with Lydia in her home and they were talking about different things, warning about these uh, worldly-minded people many times. And now I'm still telling you, now I'm telling you yet again and putting it in writing and the Holy Spirit's adding it to the Bible. <laughs> so this point is really getting across loud and clear. Uh, so it's more than we want to admit, and it must be told, and it must be told repeatedly. I think the longer that it goes without that reminder that uh, worldly-minded people can rub off on you, then uh, chances are uh, it's already happening, all right? If you've waited too long to remind people that worldly-minded people can rub off on you, um, it is what it is, all right? And so this telling, subpoint B, this telling makes Paul cry. He says, I tell you now even weeping. It's not just some academic thing. It's not, a, uh, it's not a, uh, uh, an impersonal issue. There are many, many of which Paul loves, many of which uh, know better, that he's taught them. They perhaps used to serve with him and, and, and struggle with him and, and so forth. And so we talk about um, appetites and diminished appetites and why why are some folks not hungry like they used to be and why do they seem to be drifting in different ways and and beyond just an academic exegetical study it gets very personal very quickly when you're talking about an assembly of of brothers and sisters that we that we uh you know it's it's blood sweat and tears when it comes to the christian ministry in in different ways and so he says now i tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. You can imagine as he's dictating this and his scribe is writing it down that it's bringing him to tears. And uh, several times that this happens in Paul's ministry and in several uh, other places like in Acts 20 and 2 Corinthians. And you start to think, well, Paul, what were you, some kind of a weak sister? You're some kind of a, uh, a, a Christian sissy? What was going on here? What's What's with this? Would Paul have fit in with our modern, uh, you know, wishy-washy uh, kind of televangelist that can that can crank up the tears and, and crank up the dollars in, in different ways? No, this was genuine. There's nothing phony about any of this. And so let's look at some of these. I think, and, and Jesus wept. We're going to call him a rapture sissy. We're going to call him a, a weak sister when he wept over Jerusalem, when he wept over uh, Lazarus and the things there. I don't think, uh, you know, the, the idea of tears uh, if they're genuine, then uh, you know that it jumps out, and you go, "Wow, this is this is a serious deal." All right, so let's take a look at these other places. Acts chapter twenty. Which is curious to me because these are the same elders that he's talking to in this chapter that uh, he would have been ministering with 
during the time that he wrote Philippians, if in fact I'm correct, and as our study has indicated that uh, Ephesus was the point of origin for the prison epistles instead of, uh, instead of Rome. But either way, we see the nature of the, of the ministry here in Acts 20, starting in verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. This is part of his journey to Rome. And he's in such a hurry to get to Rome, he doesn't want to, uh, he doesn't want to stop and take the time to go to Ephesus. It's like, you know, your ship docked at Galveston and, and you don't want to drive up to Austin, so you make everybody in Austin come to you. And uh, then you can preach to them in Galveston and then get back on your boat. That's, uh, that's what he's doing here. So he's in Miletus. That was the equivalent of Galveston. <laughs> and uh, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And, uh, you know, so they've been around. They've been around. They've been in leadership. Part of the team that he, when he was there for three years, he knows these guys well. And when they had come uh, to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And that's just the, the objective reality of it. Ministry is hard, and there's moments that you wish you weren't in it. <laughs> you pick a different line of work. You know, go back to tent making. There's less uh, turmoil there and, and different things. And yet the tears and the trials come upon them in these plots that, uh, that we read about in, in uh, the earlier chapters. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. That becomes the temptation, doesn't it? Well, if I just back off, if I just quit you know, stir in the pot. I can get along and, and not, uh, not make things worse. The problem is it's profitable. They benefit when he preaches it. He needs to preach it. If he doesn't preach it, then they don't profit. Teaching you publicly and from house to house. I love that expression too. Publicly, like here we are this morning in a public service and, and preaching in the pulpit and the whole congregation's assembled. But then there's house to house. There's personal ministry that happens when you're fellowshipping and, and uh, hands-on with marriages and, and, and children and all kinds of other testings and things that are going on. And so that's uh, the nature of it there. Um, without reading the whole chapter, we can get down. He talks about the warnings. And um, he says in verse 25, Behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now that is a dynamic right there. That is a warning to any Bible communicator that if you fail to give the warning, the blood's on your hands. If you give the warning, if you teach faithfully, then you're washing your hands as it were. And uh, so now it's not on you anymore because you, you gave the doctrine. It's on them now. It's on the hearers. They received it. They can either live it out or not. It's on their volition then for whether they live it out. And uh, it's, it's a marvelous doctrine. It comes out of Ezekiel and some other places in the Old Testament. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And so two different shrinkings here. Anything that's profitable in verse 20 or the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God in verse 27. And in both cases, the idea of shrinking is the idea that the preacher is going to chicken out and uh, not say what he knows he needs to say, that he's going to shrink, that he's going to um, uh, fail in his uh, mandate to preach the word. Then he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Remember, he's talking to these elders. They're called elders in verse 17. They're going to be called overseers uh, here shortly. But um, he tells them, be on guard for yourselves. Start with the leadership. Look out for yourselves. Because what happens when one of your fellow elders starts uh, uh, worshiping the God of his belly and uh, walking according to the things of this world? And uh, it can happen to anybody. So be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's then your connection. Elders in verse 17, overseers in verse 28. And they're expected to shepherd. Shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So the, uh, the issues there. One more issue on terms of tears comes up in uh, verse 31. Um, 
It says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. He's saying it's not stupid. He realizes that Paul's departure is a prime opportunity. And so he sends his, uh, his agents in. And from among your own selves, men will arise. That's even worse. The snake that comes from an outside is, uh, is easier to spot. You can look at him and say, well, what are you doing here? Who are you? We don't know you. Go away. But the one from inside who they've known, they've loved, he's been faithful, now all of a sudden, and they trust him, but he starts to now feed them different things and starts to slip in these, these worldly-minded attitudes. That's a bigger snare. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them, to take them down that path of imitation on the, the, worldly, uh, the worldly mindset. So therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I do not cease to admonish each one with tears. So there they are again. Uh, verse 19 and verse 31, both mentioning tears. Over to 2 Corinthians And keep in mind, this is this is genuine. This is there's nothing phony about this. This is not um, a, a play for sympathy. It's not a manipulation thing whereby I don't know when are uh, are women better at this than men? I'm not sure if uh, if that I know parenting. I know absolutely parenting. Uh, the boys were so much easier and then the girls could turn on the tears and you, you know, your heart breaks. And then after a while you catch on and say, wait a minute, that's, that's, you know, turn those off. You're, you're a sinner just like your brother. And I'm not going to fall for that. But the idea though, that you can, uh, you can manipulate, um, but just with a, a display of emotion and you can pull on, uh, you know, if, if logic fails, you try the, try the emotions or whatever, you know, it's just, what is that? I guess that's human and sinful and carnal, but it's not biblical. And uh, that's not what Paul's doing here. All right, 2 Corinthians 2.4, when he talks about, he was really at a low point when he left Athens. Uh, his whole team was scattered and they were laughing at him and he leaves Athens after the Mars Hill sermon and, and he comes crawling into Corinth and not only is he, he gets to Corinth and his, his budget is busted, he's out of funds. And so he starts, uh, he finds these tent makers and, and they're Jewish and he goes, wow, you know, we, I could join you. And uh, he starts making tents with Aquila and Priscilla, really at a low point. And he describes it here this way. He says, I determined this, this is the first part of Second Corinthians 2, I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. I'm in the wrong Corinthians. That's Second Corinthians. Is that what I made it for? Yeah, Second Corinthians. All right. For I, if I cause you sorrow... Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And uh, talking about the man of incest that they had to kick out uh, in, that he addressed in, in 1 Corinthians. So he says, this is the very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. In other words, they're going to respond to 1 Corinthians. But then he says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. And, and this is why we talk about 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and a tearful letter that sat in between the two. That's not in our Bibles. But he mentions it, he kind of refers to it, and we get the sense that this is something after 1 Corinthians, but before 2 Corinthians. And it caused him heartache to write it. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. And they're not always pleasant. You know, when you get rebuked, when you get chewed out, when things get spotlighted, and, and your first reaction could be a, a rough one, <laughs> when uh, you, know, you don't like hearing that kind of thing, and so you, know, you get mad, who does he think he is, and whatever. But then you stop, you think about it, and it really hits you that, first of all, it's true, okay? And then it hits you that this person actually cares for me enough to, to hit me with it. You know, I mean, if he, if he didn't care for me like that, he would have just let it slide and, and let me go off into whatever. But because he loves me in the Lord and he loves the Word of God, he's willing to stand to me face to face and just hit me with, with both barrels. And then once you're, you know... Um, 
Hebrews says all discipline seems for the moment not to be pleasant, but then afterwards, when you've been trained by it, when it's done its work, you can be very thankful. Say, thank you, Lord, I needed that. And that person was a tool, and you wonder, <laughs> you know, how, were, they, were they scared to do that, that? I mean, they had to step forward in faith and say that. So that's, uh, that's the blessing too. All right. So uh, again, that's the much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you. And um, verse 5 and 6 then, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you, and sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. You know, you say what needs to be said, and then you let it go, and you watch. And when the, when the repentance happens, man, you don't need to say another thing. You just welcome them back and say, you know, I love you, welcome back. And, and, and you're not going to keep twisting the knife. You're not going to keep, uh, I mean, the, the discipline's over. The purpose is repentance. When repentance happens, then we're done. And that's, uh, that's the overall objective anyway. Then chapter 11, his reluctant autobiography here. And this is the chapter I enjoy going through just because it's got this long catalog of earthly things that he throws up over his shoulder and says, but forget all that, right? He, he talks about all these things and being, you know, 39 lashes, receiving that five different times. That's a big deal. And yet he dismisses all that. He, he writes that off as loss. And uh, he says, apart from such external things, in verse 28, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. To Paul, it was the spiritual struggle that he, that he dealt with. His prayer life for all those pastors, all those flocks, all those testing circumstances. And that was huge. That was, that was, that was far greater to him, to his soul, than any of the stonings and lashings and, and uh, shipwrecks and all the other things that he'd gone through. So he says, who is weak without my becoming weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? See, when somebody else follows that wrong imitation and goes off down that path of, of belly idolatry, I've got to find a term for that, belly idolatry, something, bellyolatry or something. But when, when your belly becomes your appetite, when where your appetite becomes your idol, your God, and then you watch others join in and others join in, and before you know it, there's a whole committee going off that direction, that's just heartbreaking. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's crushing to uh, the spiritual leadership to watch that happen because God honors our negative volition. And we, uh, we reap what we sow and we face consequences for the choices we're making. And, uh, and if we're making choices in terms of idolatry, then uh, God's a jealous God and we're going to face some, some wrath and some judgment <clears throat> related to that. So who is led into sin? without my intense concern. And that's, uh, you got to believe there's tears connected to that as well. So far from being a weak sister, Paul had a spiritual sympathy comparable to Jesus. And of course, great examples of that with the Jesus wept passage of John eleven thirty five. But then Luke 19, 41 also addresses that. Luke 19, 41. And so uh, he's been prepping his disciples for months now that uh, the cross was coming up. He's, been, uh, he's had his eyes fixed on, on Jerusalem. He's been dedicated to going there. He has the triumphal entry <clears throat> where the religious leaders are hating every minute of it. And it's the children that have the capacity to sing the, the hosannas from Psalm 118. Then uh, they want... Uh, the religious leaders want them all to shut up. <clears throat> but when he saw the city in verse 41, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And so he talks about the consequences. If you had known, they don't. They should have. They, they should have. They had the opportunity, and yet uh, because they rejected it, 
Now they're in the position they're in. The things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. At what point then, when you harden your heart to the truth, does God further harden your heart from the truth, like with that Pharaoh example, when, when they turn negative to the warnings and then He gives them that, that hardness of heart, the closing of the eyes, the closing of the ears, now there's, there's no repentance opportunity. They've passed that. They've crossed that line. They, uh, they're going to boldly taunt the Lord God and say His blood be upon us and upon our children. They're going to demand the release of Barabbas. They're going to say, we have no king but Caesar. They are so gone in, uh, in their darkness and rebellion. And they would never know it. Because in their, in their worldview, they're the cream of the crop. <laughs> they're the top of the class. They're the best guys that uh, have ever you know, lived the law of Moses. They're the, the best ever. And uh, they have no idea that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. All right. So if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave uh, in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." Here's Jesus at the consummation of the ages. Here's Jesus. Um, the Word has been made flesh and is dwelling among us. And they're rejecting Him. How sad is this? No wonder He's weeping over it. Weeping over Jerusalem and knowing what's coming up in consequence of their rejection. Alright. And so there's that. And then of course John eleven thirty five. This is the funeral of Lazarus. I like to use this uh, in funeral messages. I have, <clears throat> I have yet to stand at a grave and uh, commanded the departed person to come forth and it just doesn't happen. All right, I wouldn't want it to happen. And can you imagine the, uh, how sad would that be? They're in glory, they're face to face with Jesus Christ. Why do I want to bring them back to this place? How, how, uh, how sad would that be? And, and, and when it comes down to it, is that the, the cause for the weeping? I think so. And so um, all the boohooing that's happening and all the blame that's happening. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, you know, Martha had that and then Mary had, had that. And if you had been here and uh, my brother would not have died. Both sisters griping over the same thing that it took him too long to get there. <coughs> And then the Jews, they're, they're wailing and all the rest of this is happening. Quite a few, it seems, in this crowd. But in verse 33, Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And so Jesus wept. And the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. I don't think that was it at all. Generally speaking, when I read not just this chapter but all throughout, they, this crowd does not strike me as being altogether uh, perceptive in, in the truth of, of, of things. And so um, if it, they just assume it's an emotional thing. They just assume, oh, you know, Jesus and Lazarus, they were, you know, best friends forever or whatever. And, then, and so he's all worked up over his physical death. And then uh, some of them were saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And here's the fallacy that causes so many folks to stumble when they, they think that the problem of evil is, a, is, a, is proof that God doesn't exist. That, well, a loving God wouldn't let that happen. And so because bad things happen, well, then there must not be a God. He's either not all loving or he's not all powerful because uh, he, he didn't stop his friend from dying. See. And it really, I think, reflects upon a juvenile, mature, immature, childish idea in terms of prayer that, uh, that God's answer to prayer always has to be your healing or keeping you from dying or these other things. Anyway, yes, he could have kept him from dying, but that wasn't the plan of God, so he didn't do it. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb and uh, he said, remove the stone. And, and this then becomes our clue why he was deeply moved from within because he knows what he's going to do here. He knew it two days ago when they were telling him that Lazarus was uh, going to die. And uh, 
By this time, uh, Martha says, by this time there uh, will be a stench. He's been dead four days. He said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, why was it important for Lazarus to be dead four days? Any idea? Ask me again on Wednesday. So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that you may, they may believe that you sent me. He's got a crowd. They're watching. They're eavesdropping. And sometimes if you're giving the gospel to somebody, that's not your real target anyway. It's the other people eavesdropping and paying attention to what it is you're telling this other guy. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here he comes. All right. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them, can you imagine? When we read verse 45, why doesn't it say, everybody saw a dead man walk out of the grave? (laughs) I mean, who doesn't get saved in this? Who watches a resurrection four days later and not get saved? This is the living God standing in front of you who brought the dead back to life. And it, but it says many, not all, some, you know, goodness. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Not believing, not believing. So why are they reporting? Okay, because they're like-minded with the Pharisees. This has to stop. This, if they let him keep doing things like this, then the whole world is going to follow him. That can't be allowed. He has to stop. And so there it is. No wonder he was weeping. You know, in the, in the context of, of this kind of crowd and this kind of conflict and those that are, that are filled with such hatred against him and then asking Lazarus to come back. And, and I don't know. I mean, if you've been face-to-face with Jesus Christ or face-to-face, of course Jesus was walking, but face-to-face in, in Abraham's bosom, being comforted by Abraham and, and so forth. I mean, you're, you're in that realm of, of, of uh, comfort and your soul has been removed from that body of sin, think about it. For the first time now, you're a sinless being. And you're enfolded in the arms of Abraham. And you're in that place of of bliss. And then you hear the master call, come back. Man. (laughs) So he did. And uh, yeah, something else. All right. Back to these enemies then in Philippians 3. Who are these guys? Are they saved? Are they not saved? Sometimes we want to say they are. Sometimes we want to say they're not. Third point of study. They are declared enemies of the cross. They are enemies. Now that can be a positional truth reality, but it can also be an experiential reality. Because we're told that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. We're told that a believer who's saved can adopt a worldly view whereby that friendship with the cosmos puts himself back into an adversarial situation against the living God. And so we're left to ask the question here, this crowd that Paul's warning about, are they regenerate? Well, first of all, I have to conclude that they are not, specifically because of this term of destruction. Philippians... uh, 319, whose end is destruction. To me, that's the best clue of all the other descriptors that we have, that if they are born again, no matter even if they die the sinner to death, even if they're the biggest loser in the, in the church age or the biggest loser in the, in the, yeah, this is church age, then it still doesn't matter. Their end is not destruction. Their end is glory. Their end is the bride of Christ standing before the Bema seat in, uh, robed in white and with eternal life, they themselves are saved, yet so as through fire. Even if they suffer the loss of all things, they themselves are saved, yet so as through fire. So their end is not destruction. But this crowd in Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction. Apoleia is our term, A-P-O-L-E-I-A. Apoleia, 18 uses. And this is what we're saved from, by the way. This is a, the verb form of this, apolumi. This is what we're saved from. Whosoever believeth in him should not apolumi, should not experience apoleia, destruction. We're delivered from that destruction. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so when I look at this crowd in Philippians 3 and their end is destruction, that's, uh, 
that's the biggest clue to me that they are uh, not regenerate and uh, and so forth. All right. Um, aspects here. Matthew chapter 7. Don't know that we'll spend a ton of time on this, but it's worth looking at these. Matthew chapter 7. What is this destruction about? The um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the uh, need to enter within the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. So you've got a choice of two gates. And uh, the, the broad and wide gate, we don't want that one. But that's the one that many are going to. It leads to Apollea, it leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Remember, how many are there that are not walking according to the pattern that you have in us? They're enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many that are going that way. There are many that, uh, that are following that path. And so Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So just as a ratio and just as a proportion, whatever numbers, if you want to come up with raw numbers or whatever, I don't think you can, but the, the, the proportion is clear. That, that there are more lost than saved. And that it's a much broader path. It's, it, it needs a larger, you know, you need to have a wider door. You've got to have double doors thrown wide open as opposed to just a narrow door that uh, the, the handful can go through in, in, uh, in an orderly fashion. So there's our term, destruction, apaleia in verse 13. And so whatever those numbers are, I don't know. Um, you know, in terms of 7 billion people on the planet today, how many are regenerate? I don't know. I, I just think it's a remnant. And then with the remnant of those that are regenerate, how many are walking in the light? How many are, are good soil as opposed to rocky soil or thorny soil that have cleared away the, the rocks and the thorns and that are actually bearing fruit? Again, it's a remnant of a remnant. So you see how that works? Of those that are saved, it's a remnant with a much larger group that aren't saved. And then within the saved, it's a remnant of those that have good soil as opposed to the, the other soils. And then even among the good soil, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, how much fruit are they bearing? Now we're talking about a remnant of a remnant of a remnant <laughs> when it comes right down to it. And, uh, and so here we are. John 17 and verse uh, 12. I love John 17. It's the high priestly prayer of our Savior. Marvelous prayer that uh, Marcus Rainsford wrote about in his book, Our Lord Prays for His Own in uh, 18-something, 19th century. Marcus Rainsford was uh, an old Puritan. All right. And uh, verse 12, and all these that he's praying for, and he's ready to go to heaven, he's ready to do the work. To me, it's, it's uh, curious. He says, Father, the hour has come. And up to this point, he's been rescued from every murder attempt against him. And they try to throw him off a cliff, they try to rush him, they try to kill him, stone him, delivered every single time because his hour had not yet come. But now he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And it was curious to me, he's not focused on the pain, he's not focused on the, the, the darkness or uh, the sin or uh, what he's going to endure. He locks in on the glory that he's going to glorify the father as the father glorifies the son. And uh, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he says in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Isn't that powerful? But he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He has finished the purpose for his life, and now he's ready to go achieve the purpose for his death. And this is what it's all about. So now he's praying for his disciples and he wants them to, to be sanctified. And he's praying for them and he's praying for the entire church age. And that's verse uh, 9. I ask on their behalf, 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but I ask uh, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is who he's interceding for. Not, not the world, but for these disciples, the ones that Jesus had given him. All right. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. Here's our apolumi. Not one of them perished, but the son of <coughs> Apollea, destruction, perdition, same word, the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Only Judas Iscariot and Antichrist are given this title, son of perdition. Judas Iscariot here and Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. But this is the destruction. We have no part in this. We're born again. We have eternal life. Not one of them perished but the son of destruction. The only unbeliever that was allowed to be an apostle, that was allowed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ was that unbeliever Judas Iscariot. Romans 9.22 God's a lot more patient than I am, than any of us are, in in respect to things. And if I had uh, created this world and designed this plan, would I have included volition and uh, rebellion? Would I tolerate the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why would I put up with that? For how many thousands of years now has He been enduring this? And so... Um, God is the creator. God is the one in the infinite wisdom that's molded these things. And, and we're just a lump. What, what can we say if he is going to make, uh, make a lump into an honorable use or make a lump into a common use? And then what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he's capable of doing that. And he's promised a day when he will do that. We're just not there yet. Willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. Man, that, that whole concept is a sermon right by itself. Willing to demonstrate his wrath. You know, the, the eternal God has the same love, the same wrath that he's always had. He's never changed. So was wrath something he got later? Or is wrath something he's always had? He's always been, he's always had wrath. So when could he ever exercise it? Had he not created angels and men and permitted the rebellion. Curious thing to think about. Willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for apoleia, prepared for destruction. And why would he do that? Why would he endure all of the, the thousands of years of, uh, of human rebellion? And we don't even know how long the angelic rebellion went. Why did he endure all that? Because he's got a greater glory that he's looking forward to. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Now, is is mercy something that he added later to his attributes, or is mercy something he's always had? He's always had mercy. The I am in every attribute has always had every attribute. God can't add anything. It's not like he had righteousness, love, and justice, and then later on added. No, no, they were all part of God's act, and they always have been. But when could he apply grace without creatures that need grace? When could he apply mercy without creatures who need mercy? Same thing with wrath. When could he express wrath? He's willing to display his wrath. He's willing to make his power known. But there have to be other minds to apprehend what he's demonstrating. And so here we are. You and I are vessels of mercy, and uh, in His mercy, of course, He saved us. And uh, thank God for the plan that is put forth in this way. All right. So He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Why is it taking so long? Because it's better than a shorter universe would have been. Okay? Think about it. It's better than a shorter time frame would have been. If his desire, um, whatever his desire is, he's got desire to glorify Jesus Christ to the maximum. He's got a desire to present to his son the greatest blessing that he can present to his son for all eternity. And so how many believers is that? 
How many elect angels is that? How many redeemed humans is that? Well, it's more than we have today because we're still here. (laughs) All right. And, you know, if you would have ended it thousands of years ago, we wouldn't have been there, but it would have been fewer. Okay. And, And so some people, this gets into some philosophical things. Some people hate the fact that God sends anybody to hell. And, and wouldn't it have been better if God just designed a universe where everybody got saved? Where everybody accepted the gospel? Where everybody, where nobody goes to hell? And in that kind of philosophical rebellion against the plan of God, what they're stating is, is that in their imagination, they can daydream a conceivable universe better than the one God put together. Because God is clearly sending unbelievers to hell. And these critics don't like that. They go, well, that's not right. That's Well, wait a minute. Who are you, oh lump, um, who are you? Just stop and think about it. What if the only universe where everybody got saved would be just Jesus by himself? <laughs> you know, I mean, you get multiple humans involved and multiple volitions involved. If you don't coerce volition, then what do you do with those that express negative volition? Say, and so, in any event, the consideration that this is not the best universe possible puts you in a position to know more than God does, because we can't know that. We can't know that. So what if God wants, what if He wants a billion souls to love Jesus Christ for all eternity? I'm just throwing a number out there, I don't know. But whatever that is, if He wants a billion souls to love Jesus Christ for a thousand generations, for all eternity, well then how many billions and billions of souls will he have to endure of those who hate Jesus Christ, reject the gospel, die and go to hell. Okay? And so if that, if if 100 billion unbelievers in the lake of fire is what it takes for a billion glorified to love Jesus Christ, is that worth it? See? We can't know. We can't know. We're not in God's position. We don't know what these numbers are, but God is. And because this is the design that he went with, this is the world that he's unfolding, out of all the other imaginary worlds where you know, we pretend that other things could happen in a parallel universe, but God saw all of those and picked this one to glorify his son. And that's where we have to rest by faith and trust that he knows what he's doing. So, he endured plainly, what verses uh, 22 here and 23 say, he did this in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. However many vessels of mercy he calls to do this with. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And that talks about our position here in the church. All right, more destruction. Uh, in fact, in, in Philippians 3.19, by the way, this is the second time we've encountered destruction. Do you remember the first time back in chapter 1? There was um, a reference to this. In fact, those of you that are very sharp will uh, probably pick up on the fact that I cut and paste the notes from the chapter 1 study to this study instead of typing out Apollea again and all these verses. Control C for copy, control V for paste, and they're in your notes again. But in Philippians 1.28, in the uh, when he was encouraging them to to uh, have the, the same confidence that he has to live as Christ, to die as gain, um, <clears throat> talking about how they're gonna stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That kind of unity is a sign. That kind of unity in a flock, if there's a stable local church that's that unified, that's that uh, uh, firm, in no way alarmed by your opponents, well, that becomes a sign. It's a sign of destruction, apoleia for them, but salvation for you. It's a sign that here they are carrying on and raging and you know, screaming at the world and pounding on doors and all carrying on with all this stuff. And here's this other group, calm, tranquil, stable, 
And that becomes a, a whole object lesson right there. It's a, it's a visible display. Do you want to follow the path of destruction or do you want to follow the path of stability? And so uh, that's how it was uh, referenced there. For to you it has been granted not only for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's, uh, that's our birthright in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 We already saw John seventeen twelve with uh, Judas Iscariot. Here's the only other person in the whole Bible that's called the son of destruction, and this is Antichrist. This is the man of lawlessness. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Let's rephrase that. We request you, brethren, concerning the rapture. That's a shorter way of saying that, Right? Is that not the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episynagogue gathering together to Him? Of course it is. We're being gathered together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And of course He taught that in 1 Thessalonians. So He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the rapture, you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay? You're not in the tribulation yet. Plain and simple. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the seven-year tribulation and the thousand-year millennial reign kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the day of the Lord. And so, again, to paraphrase verses 1 and 2, we request of you, brethren, regarding the rapture, don't be quickly shaken thinking that you're in the tribulation. That doesn't make any sense. How could you be in the tribulation? Let no one in any way deceive you. For the tribulation will not come unless the rapture comes first. Called departure comes first. Sometimes it's rendered apostasy. In fact, ever since the King James it's been rendered apostasy. But seven English Bibles prior to the King James all rendered it as departure. And uh, we're trying to revive that. (laughs) It's a translation, all right? Trying to overcome 1611. But so let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rapture comes first. The departure comes first. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. You see, before we can ever approach the revelation of Jesus Christ at second advent, there's going to be the revelation of Antichrist. Seven years prior, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the son of Apollea who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Of course, the book of Daniel teaches this, other places. And do you not remember what I was telling you while I was still with you? I was telling you these things. He gave them all this rapture doctrine. And then he wrote the the rapture doctrine in 1 Thessalonians. They should be very solid on this. And then they get a letter in the mail and it's got Paul's name on it and they fall for it say, can you imagine what must Paul have said in this counterfeit letter? Or not Paul, but whoever the fraud was, would have said, oops, I got it wrong. Sorry, no rapture. You're in the tribulation now. Good luck to you. Something like that. I mean, how bizarre must that have been? Wouldn't it be great if archaeology could find that letter someday? Anyway, there's our son of destruction. Real quickly, then two more. First Timothy 6, 9. Realized we have nothing to do with any of this destruction. And yet, we can find ourselves imitating it. We can find ourselves following the course, becoming imitators of these sons of destruction. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Apollea. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and sung by wandering, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith, and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So that's not our destiny, but we we can become imitators of that crown, and uh, face the consequences. Finally, Hebrews ten twenty nine. I'm out of time. Hebrews ten twenty nine. We enter within the veil.
Nope, it should be 39. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's not 29, it's 39. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the reminders that destruction used to be that uh, used to be our destiny. We were vessels of wrath until we became vessels of mercy. And by your grace, Father, you sent your Son, and by your grace you provided us eternal life. Thank you for enduring the vessels of wrath so that you can manifest your glory to the vessels of mercy. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.